My name is Alice. I work for the Umbrella Corporation, the largest and most powerful commercial entity in the world. I was head of security at the secret high-tech facility, The Hive, a giant underground laboratory developing experimental viral weaponry. But there was an incident. The virus escaped and everybody died. Trouble was, they didn't stay dead. Released in 2002, little did we know that Paul W.S. Anderson choosing to make another video game movie. Here, taking over from zombie godfather George Romero, it would see him perhaps rather unfairly branded as solely putting out such projects. More so, as this film being the first film in a six-film franchise, he not only introduces the character of Alice, who, as the series progressed, would soon become a beloved figurehead for the series, which Anderson, who cinematically would take way beyond the source material and instead into his own vision for this world. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And tonight we have got a hefty chunk of movies and tea as we're going to be looking at the Resident Evil franchise. Let's take it to the booth. again to another edition of Movies in Tea and tonight we are going to be obviously talking about the Resident Evil franchise. Uh, I'm never sure if it's franchise or saga is the best way to describe what Anson really has created here but certainly this is probably going to be a, a bit more of a weightier show than our other ones mainly because we're talking about what five six films here um, which is something I, as we said we just don't think anyone predicted happening when the original film was released back in 2002 but Kim I know that you are a fan of these films I myself was a little slower to warm up to them I watched the original one in the cinema and then kind of ignored them and caught up with them sort of a bit further down the line well yeah I mean I I really really liked liked that a lot I actually really caught up with it um I actually was only watching Resident Evil I think probably just a few years back when Retribution was about to be released. I don't know why. I, I don't know. I mean, I never really watched a lot of video game adaptations as it was, but I don't know. I guess when I started watching um, Retribution's trailer, I got really into it, and it was kind of like heavy zombies, and there was a lot of action, and I really liked this uh, tough-ass chick that Mila Jovovich played, and I started watching it, and I had—I believe I had started watching Resident Evil for, like, one of my first uh, horror marathons uh, when I first started my blog. And it was this horrifying experience because I was not desensitized by horror at that point. It was one of the first horrors that I sat down after a really long break. And I, I still remember, like, the first film so clear Every single time I watched it, I knew what would go on and I knew where the scary parts were, but it still would 
get me really tense. And I think that what really contributes to Resident Evil being so great is its first film really leading the way for the survival horror feeling that you get kind of when you would pick up the game. And I think that that's really what Anderson was trying to do because I believe that um, I was watching one of the featurettes and uh, about like um, about like behind the scenes talk about him directing Resident Evil, like the first one and his inspiration of really wanting to turn this into uh, into uh, adapt to adapt this to adapt this video game was because of the anxiety and like the immersiveness he felt from playing Resident Evil 2. So I, I think that I think that that's. You know, it's great that I feel that like a lot of things worked really well for the film. They got um, two really great composers together and then they got a really nice cast and um, some familiar faces, some that are familiar now more than before. Yeah, there's certainly I mean, it's amazing how when we look at the franchise and how he's grown it from being just a straight up video game adaptation. I mean, if we look at the film really as a series of two film books in a way, we've obviously got the Survivor first, uh, which co- era, which covers the first two. Uh, then we're into the post-apocalyptic world, and it didn't help the fact that none of these are numbered, so it's really a real pain in the uh, the proverbial when you're trying to remember all the which ones come first. But I mean, when we go into the third one, which is Extinction, and then into Afterlife, we're in the sort of post-apocalyptic era and then when the time we've moved on to the final two we're into essentially what's the all-out war era for the series it's less about being surviving and about rebuilding society and it's just about you've got these clear defining lines between alice and her little group of followers and then you've got the evil umbrella corporation who are making sort of the last stand so when we look at like retribution uh and the final chapter that's sort of like our all-out war era but just obviously go back to the start really and we're just obviously best off starting with the survivor era and the history for resident evil i mean this film was in production hell for a long time uh george romero first had it in um 1998 he was the most popular though there was other versions that came before it um alan b McElroy, who did films like rapid fire halloween 4 and wrong turn had also taken a crack at the script and they couldn't ever get it to work and romero's script for the longest time seemed like it was going to go ahead it was titled biohazard and ultimately the producers just weren't happy with romero's vision for it and during this time Padre santon had written his own script uh, originally wrote one which was a lot closer to the game titled undead which his own opinion wasn't very good and when they did give him the job he basically went and rewrote the script and came out with his first version which was called resident evil ground zero um unfortunately 9-11 happened and they had to end up changing the name and we end up obviously with his version that we have now which essentially it gives us the first game cuts out a lot all the mansion sort of sequences and just focuses on the lab sequences which make up the final quarter of the game also makes a very bold decision to essentially break away from the tradition for the video game um, adaptation and not give us characters from the actual game but instead create a whole bunch of new characters in particular the character of alice this amnesiac uh worker of from umbrella who's 
joined by this SWAT team who are basically trying to infiltrate the hive, this uh, lab complex that's being guarded by the supercomputer called the Red Queen and basically has unleashed all these zombie hordes that have been created by the T-Virus being released as well as unleashing these horrible traps as well. So um, with these sort of first two first two films, I mean, they're very sort of, sort of standard, in many ways, very sort of standard uh, zombie survival horror films. Uh, would you say, Kim, or do you think that they were trying to actually do something sort of new with what they were giving us? I think that they they were in a certain way, I think, because, you know, as people who know the franchise knows that, like, as, you know, even as we enter into the end of, like, the end of the first one and the second one, we start seeing um, the zombies are really, you know, infected by a virus. They're infected by a T-virus, which regenerates them. And as they keep experimenting with this biochemical, bioweaponry or whatever you call it, um, they they morph, they mutate into these monsters that become even worse. And, you know, obviously it starts in the first one where it is just this freaky fast cat creature that, you know, the moment they get in contact with the T-virus, well, it just morphs it even more. It kind of grows into something else right away. And I think that that really gives it something different because, yes, you know, the normal people, you know, the that get infected, like, in the lab, we have that same idea of the hordes, you know, slow moving. They're a little bit clumsy, kind of the traditional sense of what zombies are yeah. uh, as we are used to. But then, I mean, at the same time, they don't really sell themselves. If we didn't know Resident Evil, if you walked into this movie completely blind, you never knew what the game was about and you didn't know what you were going in for as like, you know, you walk in this. The first part of the film, you would never know it's a zombie film. For, like, a good chunk of, like, the first, what, 30, 45 minutes or something, you're you're walking into this. It's a survival horror. You're walking into this abandoned lab. You have no idea what's going on. Some SWAT team is herding these two amnesiacs around who hmm. don't know what they did, what happened. And she woke up in, like, the shower, and all she knows is she has a red dress laid out, and that's all she has, you know? <laughs> so... In that sense, you know, you always start wondering what's going on and you follow the track as the, the SWAT team is filling them in. Oh, this is what happened and this is why we're here and this, this is what we're doing. And as they walk through, they get more information. And, you know, but of course, we all know that it's not the full information because no one knows what's happening. Although the film does take that path of having that moment where the audience knows what's going on. But the characters don't so it creates like the suspense where you don't know when something is going to happen and how they're going to you know how they're when they're going to be attacked and uh how it's going to happen yeah i mean certainly the opening of resident evil is incredibly tense and it's probably one of the i think it's one of anson's greatest uh moments as a director because i remember watching the the cinema when it was first released and being absolutely terrified by what was happening on the screen because it's so the use of sound and it's so sort of quiet and they've got this sense of creeping dread and then suddenly the SWAT team are coming in and things are happening and it's you're just like sort of taking along for the ride for from that part but even before then just how we see like the T-Virus being released how it suddenly affects all the the lab workers and stuff it's just got this wonderful perfect setup and when we have like the computer uh, sort of imagery of the hive 
and we can see the complete layout. It's just really great storytelling by on Anson's part that he shows us exactly what the hive is. So we can see it's this huge structure. We can see it's all underground and it's got all these different uh, compartments that they're going to have to work through. And I think it's just manages to establish um, the setting so quickly and without having to do tons of expedition and just say, oh, well, the mansion was serving this purpose and these people were doing this and, and that. And um, the other interesting fact I love about this first film especially is the fact that he gave all the cast members copies of Alice in Wonderland because he based so many characters and influence, so many elements of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, obviously, Alice is the Alice who uh, goes to the Looking Glass because she obviously goes to the mirror to uh, get into the secret lab. We've got the Red Queen, the Red Queen, who yeah. obviously has loves to chop up people's heads, which we see in this. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got the White White Rabbit, which is obviously what the T virus is being tested on. And you have all these like fun little tweets, and certainly if you listen to the commentary and you see how certain characters act, Joe Rodriguez and her sort of male counterpart, um, they're apparently supposed to represent Tweedledee and Tweedledum, and uh, mm-hmm. Rodriguez actually emphasizes the fact she's Tweedledee <laughs> on the commentary. She's very adamant that that's uh, the one, and when they sit, um, one the scientists that they find um, on the ledge. Uh, I believe it was Matt. Um, he's supposed to represent yeah. the smoking caterpillar. That's why he's sitting the way he is on the ledge. And I thought, it's just kind of genius the fact he's got this whole undertone of Alice in Wonderland worked into a zombie movie. In many ways, uh, the first Resident Evil movie, I, I say to me, it's kind of like a starter zombie movie because, yes, we are zombies, but we're constantly cut away as soon as anything bad's going to happen. And I remember being so annoyed when I saw this in the cinema, the fact that you think, oh, I'm going to see something gory, I'm going to see some, something really fantastic. And I think this is more my own folks. I'm, like, coming into this, brought up on, like, this diet of, like, George Romero zombie movies yeah. who, like, turned zombies from being, like, from their original carnation where they were sort of, like, slave labor and horror movies to the more sort of, like, popular form we see them now as, like, the gut munchers. Um... And you so many scenes like you have like these hordes of zombies and you think, Oh, we're gonna see people like get torn apart and stuff and no, it's like every time something's gonna happen, it's like cut away at the last second. And it's like, <laughs> oh, you you just feel constantly cheated and I remember it annoying me so bad. But I you know what? I I honestly think that because of this, I enjoyed the ending gory parts a lot more because it felt like it was worth that wait to have that really brutal death at the end where you started seeing more and more blood and it was really working through the buildup. And I feel that resident evil, like not just a franchise, but even this first film gets a lot of crap for being bad and having bad dialogue and having like, not uh, like a lot of, I don't know, a lot of the normal things that I guess Anderson gets faulted for. And it's become kind of like a, a trait in his work, which seems to have this really bad mark on it. But if, if I look at Resident Evil right now, and I think you put a really good point that, you know, it's a really good starter point to zombie movies. It's not like, it, it is very, you know, there is that survival horror intensity, but it doesn't have all that gore and that, that you know, it doesn't have as much of those heavy elements that could be really, like, gut-wrenching for people who are watching um, bloody films for the first time. And it it works in that sense where I also think that this creates, 
I mean, there is a lot of atmospheric horror right now, and I really am one who loves it. And I think that this one, you had mentioned the the score before, and I think that that's one of the key points of Resident Evil of why it works is that um, that he put together um, Marco Beltrami and Marilyn Manson to do the score together. And um, when I was watching like the the ending uh, the ending part, and as they were talking about the score. What's really interesting is that, you know, there's one side that is more of like a traditionalist music producer. He makes music, scores music in a traditional way, more melodic. And then you add someone like Marilyn Manson, who believes that the score should include sound effects and Mm -hmm. things that create environmental things. And when you marry these two ideas together, it really creates, I find what all the atmosphere is about because at this point you're in this lab and the sounds that are in the background you really don't know if it's actually the environment that's causing it or if it's the score that's making it but it matches so well with that world and that lab and that secret facility that they're in that you kind of accept it for what it is and it kind of builds and builds to you know kind of make it a very creeping feeling that's just in your heart and i think that that's you know in the heart of this this is where resident evil really really shines yeah definitely i mean when we look at the sort of resident evil theme for the film that sort of um electro sort of ambient music uh that that we see featured it's very reminiscent of like john carpenter's scores in the fact that the soundtrack plays such an important part throughout the film um even when we look at the band switch into between music to the film like we got obviously like the slipknot and ramstein uh both your tracks on the they submit for this film do appear on my angry running mix so when i'm out running i like to have elements of the uh, resident evil soundtrack on there i think it's really great and i think it really sort of tapped into that audience because it was sort of like uh sort of teenagers and college kids who were going to go and see it so it makes sense so further that you have someone who they're obviously familiar with working on the soundtrack um and it just sort of keeps it in the realm of its sort of target audience but the film, I mean, it's obviously noticeable for introducing Miller Jovanich as Alice, who, in this first film, I mean, she's the amnesiac. She has no sort of special abilities apart from her wits. And as it goes on, she, like, discovers that she's got all these amazing skills. Um, and it's a real credit to Jovanich, the fact that she did all her own stunt work, all her own fight training uh, for the film. The only stunt she didn't actually do is a leap to a pipe where she had a stunt double coming and that's because her agent thought she would like get hung up on the cables um Mm. but yeah there's a when we look at this film the fact there's so much practical effects used i think only the liquor which is like the big mutated creature at the end um which was first in like resident evil 2 um that's only the real sort of noteworthy sort of digital effect that we see here there's a lot of real practical effects here and especially when we look at the dogs uh which are basically uh, Dobermen that have been covered in gore and uh, yeah. and blood and things, and apparently they Anson considered an issue with the dogs licking the substances off themselves, so uh, <laughs> they considered to keep reapplying it. But there's this real. It's, it's probably it's probably why um, they were talking about how this is like the first time that anybody in in their knowledge when they did it that it was like the first time that these dogs were that dogs had made up makeup on them and maybe that's one of the reasons because animals <laughs> are like ooh, this is delicious it's new <laughs> <laughs> yeah dogs aren't too picky what they eat um and uh yeah i mean the, the, 
she when you look at some of the things that she does like she does a spin kick off the wall uh which she actually practiced three months to do this one shot uh of the film it's real commandment and certainly as the films go along and the more she stay with the franchise she seems to have more say over the direction of her character i know that from like when we look at the third film um I'm going to write this down. Extinction? Yeah, when we look at Extinction, um, I mean, she's using her own clothing line to design Alice's outfits, which I think is really sort of interesting. I think she probably gets a little more sway because she is obviously married to the director. Um, <laughs> at that point, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when she signed on to the film, she was actually, um, I believe she was married to Luke Besson, and uh, she met Paul Anson, and in her own words, she was like, I met this guy, and I knew I instantly had to have him. And uh, so she left uh, Luke Besson and uh, hooked up with uh, Paul W.S. Anton and they've obviously been together since. So it worked out well. He uh, got his leading lady and pretty much got her guaranteed to be in all these films going forward. So, But <laughs> beside that, I mean, she really embodies this character of Alice and as when she's first introduced in this film, she could be just like this throwaway sort of lead and they could have gone with with any sort of lead but as the series goes on it's quite remarkable the evolution we see of this character um certainly when we get into apocalypse and we start seeing that she's now got these amazing superpowers because she's got the t-virus um that she's been infected with and it gives her all these amazing abilities which i felt was really to apocalypse's detriment uh the fact that she was now kind of like this superhero style character um she's there like leaping motorcycles through church windows and battling zombies with two police batons there were so many elements that like worked so that you could see like oh she's sort of scavenging these weapons like the last shot of resident evil where she's there in the hospital road with a shotgun um was like so cool and you were just like i want to see what happens next um because it's obviously setting up like the resident evil 2 storyline we're in raccoon city um, you know, zombies in the city, this huge escape, and all the promotion work shows are there with like the two batons. She's got all this gear, and uh, it just felt kind of flat in so many ways uh, when we get into Apocalypse. Like, the character felt like it made too much of a leap for myself into being sort of like this amnesiac agent to now this super powered agent. Um, and it didn't help the fact that she was sort of like tagged up with these survivors who were kind of kind of expendable to say the least <laughs> well i think that i think the purpose of the second film um was it was a little far-fetched it's definitely my least favorite of the franchise um but i think the purpose of this film was that it did have that you know uh it gives her a love interest in a way she has an attraction for um carlos which is played by um odette fair i think that's how you say his name and um, and you also bring in Jill Valentine, who's also another kick-ass chick. Apparently, um, Paul W.S. Anderson seems to be really into the kick-ass chick things. That's probably why he likes Resident <laughs> Evil so much, because as the franchise moves on, we're going to see so many more of these ladies who make it out, and they're all really hardcore. It's nice, I think. Um, Jill Valentine was uh, a fun person to add to the mix. I think she was really, really tough, but then... The movie, I think Apocalypse is one of those really far-fetched ideas, I find. Like, 
as basic as it felt that this was like post-apocalyptic, there was a lot of survival elements and they were running around the city trying to find this little girl and, and whatnot. It just really felt like, I don't know, it felt like it was just so oh, far away from what we had expected it to be. It's just like she awakes and then suddenly she has all these powers and she knows how to use them. She's not clueless anymore. And you wonder, it's like, well, I don't know how many months it was since, you know, you got put down, you woke up in an empty hospital, you stepped outside, and then there's that kind of idea where everyone there was expendable, and it was so obvious who was going to make it out. At the same time, if you looked at just Jill Valentine's side of the story, it was kind of like, you know, I mean, who does that? She she just walks into the police station and then fires her headshots at all the zombies, <laughs> and then she just says something really like her one line her like fun one line thing and then she exits the building and no one stops her and you're just like i don't know what just happened (laughs) (laughs) is that is that even possible (laughs) yeah obviously this this uh first sequel uh anderson didn't actually return to direct he did produce and he did wrote the screenplay so he's very much still got a control over the world and he passes the director of reigns over to alexander witt who's best known more as a second unit director for the likes of ridley scott he's done a lot of work with marvel um he's most recently worked on infinity wars the latest avengers movie so he's uh someone who's certainly been in the industry for a while so the problem is that witt's obviously come in and he's still working from trying to pick up from anderson's vision and i think he felt more sort of like tied to that a video game movie has to obviously include all these sort of like bits and pieces from the actual video game to be successful and popular to its audience um so apocalypse actually features a lot more sort of elements you mentioned already you've got the likes of carlos we've got the big baddie in this uh giant zombie called nemesis who's got like a chain gun and is basically a super soldier who just constantly says stars um which is really cool as it is in the game but it uh i don't know it it kind of felt a little flat but then again it could just been the fact that i wasn't never felt ever invested in this film there was there was too many sort of elements where it required you to take too many sort of like leaps of faith i mean you mentioned already sorry i I think that i'm sorry i I just want to like i think that what happens here is that it feels disconnected from each piece as they put these people together because you have one guy who's just you know uh hacking through the systems and the cities and he's trying to bring these people together and it never feels like you know i mean i i'm okay like i think that one of the factors that we're probably going to talk about how it develops throughout the rest of the films should maybe be mentioned here is that a lot of the film changes locations through tech. So a lot of times it's by camera work or through the Red Queen or through like diagrams of where they're the facility that they're at, like these 3D uh, blueprint sort of style. And I wonder what you feel about them. Like, do you feel that it kind of pulls you out of the story or that in later films, I feel like it works better than say this one? It's hard to say, really, where where my sort of issues are, are coming from, because it's so many small things that sort of add up to add up, become sort of, because become so sort of blown up because they're so frequent that something would annoy me. There never seemed to be like any sort. Of, if there was just like a a set plot in this film, I probably would be able to ignore yeah. many of the sort of flaws that were going on here. But 
I mean, I struggle to care about the char- these characters' plight. Um, but then you think about, but then you think about it right now. I'm just thinking about it now, and I was like, once you talked about Ridley Scott, I was like, doesn't this one feel a lot like zombies, like zombies, but aliens with zombies, where your goal is like the main actress is trying to get to a girl and saving a little, there's like a little girl in the equation and stuff like that to get to get her out. No, I, I never actually saw this. Um, I mean, maybe was... maybe there was a little bit of that, but then I mean, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of things that I guess Apocalypse is missing, and I and I feel like maybe it has to do with a director that's not exactly director material, and he doesn't pull the movie together the way that say Anderson would have helmed this film. He probably would have approached it a little bit more different because, you know, as much as, you know, Anderson taking Resident Evil, people had a lot of criticism towards it. He still has, you know, those famous shots, like those overhead shots that really work. And in the later films, we really get a lot of those that really build the the mood and the, the scene and this really gives these really nice cinemagraphic moments in, in the film. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly when the film was when they were doing the promotion for the film. This is actually one really kind of noteworthy for being like a film that was actually uh, told a bunch of lies in its promote form in its trailers because in the trailer we got the scene where she's repelling down the building and it's like exploding behind her and in the film mm. she just repels down the building. There's no explosions and it's kinda of like, oh, that's kind of a cheat. I think what saves this film in so many ways is the fact that like uh Jovanich is so attached to this character already. I mean she's this is on the second time she played her but she's there defending and coming up with reasons why the characters the way they are like yeah. why are all the characters scantily dressed which is like a constant criticism of the game um mm-hmm. i mean obviously we've got like jill valentine he's <laughs> uh scantily dressed and in the game um it's because it ha- the zombie apocalypse happened where she's in an apartment and that's what she happened to be wearing um and in apocalypse it's because there's this heat wave and that's why the female characters are dressed the way they are Interestingly, I mean, Jill Valentine was supposed to be the lead in Romero's vision for Resident Evil, so it's great the fact that Anderson chose to bring her back and make and make her sort of like I don't know, sort of Alice Two or sort of her psychic. It's hard to say what Jill's role is because if you're a fan of the game, you have like these expectations of what these characters play, and then Anderson chooses no. I'm going to bring these characters in, but we're not going to use them the way that you think they are. They're going to be very much sort of like sideline characters here. Um, yeah. And and it's surprising that, you know, the, the one character, there are only, I think, two characters that carry over from, well, three characters that carry over from this one to the next one. Two of them end up being together, and Jill Valentine, obviously, we'll see later on in the in the, in the in the franchise as she comes back and in another way. Um, I think I think like this is a good point to move on because Apocalypse is not one of those central films that we want to talk about because it isn't really direct. It's not directed, only written by Anderson. Yeah. Um, so um, we'll we'll go we'll go next to the next um, the next era, which we head into the post-apocalyptic. At this point in Resident Evil Extinction, uh, we start off in the desert where um, well we start off in a facility. <laughs> but to be accurate, we start off in a facility and we start seeing that. Um, this fellow called Dr. Isaacs, which everybody now popularly knows as a dude in Game of Thrones, and I can't remember his name. 
Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> not like there's only a few characters in Game of Thrones. Uh, but yeah, we see the Ian Glenn's first appearance as Dr. Isaacs, who yeah. will become this real <laughs> background sort of... Yeah, he plays um, Jorah Moramont in Game of Thrones. and uh... so, so he plays Dr. <laughs> Isaacs, and um, Dr. Isaacs, we realize, is trying to create, um, to do experiments on zombies to kind of tame them but he is a real shady character and he doesn't hide it one second at all at <laughs> all and um we see that you know he's having all these um alice clones at the beginning which mysteriously uh is how we start the film and then we pull straight over to alice who is riding her motorcycle because alice is badass and she loves riding <laughs> motorcycles <laughs> that's that's the only justification we apparently need there. <laughs> well, at this point, I think Alice is is that badass, iconic female character. Um, as crappy as the films are that people talk about, I feel that most of the audience, at least myself, I mean, one of my major selling points is Alice. And, um, I mean, it's one of the reasons that one of the first, like, Halloween parties I went to, I actually dressed up as Alice. <laughs> so... I really, uh, yeah, I think that it's it's really nice. But Extinction changes it really quickly. It changes the tone into that post-apocalyptic. And the, des- the desert is a really nice shift to the atmosphere and the world and the environment that we need to know about. Oh, definitely. I think this is really the moment where the film, the series, broke away from the games and sort of went off in its own direction. And the fact that at this point Anderson's established Alice as his lead only sort of further makes it stand on its own merits and it was hard to still see these movies as being video game movies because they were starting to become very much their own thing um again uh she's very invested in this character of alice and she designs all the clothing for her character um which was produced through her clothing line jobber hawk Anderson, at this point, he's still typing over projects. Previously, he was doing Alien vs. Predator when he should have been doing Apocalypse. This time, he is off doing Death Race and found himself unable to get a, a sort of do the two projects at the same time because both studios wanted their movie delivered. So he was actually given the opportunity to handpick his own director for the film. He still stayed on as both producer and scriptwriter for this, and he brings on Russell McCauley who is best known for directing Highlander and Razorback. He's an Australian director. And for my money, he really took the franchise in this exciting new direction as we're now obviously into the post-apocalyptic era for the franchise. So as you mentioned already, we're right from the start, we're filled in the fact that Raccoon City was nuked uh, to contain this horde. And we're now in this sort of post-apocalyptic world where... We or the have... nuke didn't help. <laughs> yeah, it didn't it didn't help things at all. Um, and now Alice is sort of like with this with the survivors who are now in this sort of like sort of uh, futuristic caravan that are heading through the desert of uh, Las Vegas, uh, trying to find some sort of salvation for themselves. Um, amongst the number, we've got Ashante, who mm-hmm. is great if you like two thousand R and B. This is probably like a highlight of. I would say her career, 
happens. And uh, yeah, she doesn't make it out of this one as uh, she meets the unfortunate demise of the group of uh, zombie birds, which many people say is, again, one of those highlights of the franchise. But now we're obviously in this post-apocalyptic era. Anderson obviously returns for the following, the film which obviously um, follows this, which is, I want to say Afterlife, yes? Yes, Afterlife. Uh, which is Afterlife, and at that point he's moving for... He gives an interesting comparison, because obviously with this this third film, we're in the desert, we're then into Alaska for the fourth film, so we have this interesting comparison of, like, desertscape to sort of Alaskan wilderness and sort of cityscape, so he really turns it into this real globe-trotting adventure without really having to try... Um, yeah, but I mean, like, Afterlife doesn't even start in Alaska. It starts in, like, a Japanese umbrella facility. That's right, because obviously, I mean... <laughs> and then we learn about Wesker's love for purging facilities. It's real fun. <laughs> real fun stuff. <laughs> well, everyone's going to have a hobby. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You just reminded me of something that I just watched. <laughs> <laughs> The, but yeah, we've we've obviously now uh, we've got these this whole sort of purpose of these two films is about these remaining survivors trying to find salvation. The whole time, I mean, Anson's just never afraid at any point to just like evolve his his idea. Like he could have just stuck in like in the post-apocalyptic world and have people hang out in the desert for another three movies and turn it into the Rome, the sort of Mad Max movie that the last one essentially became. Um, it's the I mean for myself I mean this third film is kind of like where they start to get a little better um, yeah certainly after Apocalypse this was certainly a very big step up uh, in terms of direction in terms of the character of Alice being portrayed it does however obviously go into that sort of a little more far-fetched sort of era because obviously at the end of 3 we discover all the Alice clones and it's now Alice and the Alice Army. I I think right now it's um I think it's 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 pretty nice. I think that extinction goes in the direction of the desert, and at this point we start learning about a little bit more about Alice. Um, I feel like Apocalypse really didn't give us that uh that step that we needed to learn a little bit more about this character. All we got was that she had more action skills and she was like crazy superhuman. But in this one, you kind of feel like you get a little bit of a deeper um, formation because she gets like kind of like her character um, kind of you you see, you know, again, Carlos is in this one. So she kind of has that relationship, uh, the connection, not really a relationship, but like a connection that continues on Um, at the same time. You kind of see that, you know, what happened from that second film to the third film and gives that little bit of a connection backstory. Where at the same time, we also see here, it gets a little bit more techie. Like, it gets more where she... We see how Umbrella Corporation has control and how, uh, you know, how the T-Virus has these different capabilities that's affecting her um, in a negative way. Because, you know, with every bad thing, there's always... uh, Or with every good thing, there's always something bad that comes along with it. And um, those repercussions that can happen with this. And, I mean, I have to say that the third is a really big step up. And, and I mean, I think 
having uh, a decent, you know, director probably helped. Um, I don't know much about this director, but I think that he did a pretty fairly good job. I mean, he had some really nice scenes and he had some really great moments and the shooting, like how he shot the film was really nice, taking in like the set and really capturing that desert and those hazards. And especially like you mentioned before the bird scene where it was just a sky full of ravens yeah. that had like really zombified eyes and just... <laughs> I you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of really great moments, and the characters were pretty great too. I love the fact for the crow sequence, they only actually used two real crows. <laughs> <laughs> the, the rest of it's all uh, basically these two crows that they've they've replicated a few hundred times. The other interesting thing I love about this uh, about this third film is the fact that the previous two were both at night. Now we're into the daytime, and zombies in the daytime is just so difference i mean obviously if you're shooting things at night you've got the obvious horror threat there because you know you this fear of the unknown you don't know there's so many places they can hide and be but in the daytime it's as we see in these uh the third and fourth movies you know what you the horror is and it really sort of plays up this the unrelenting horde elements and i think certainly zombies in the desert is something that we haven't really seen done before um i think perhaps only the dead uh, which is obviously shot in the african desert was the only other time i could think of like zombies in the desert uh well if... i mean um i mean there's that um uh that fake montreal one um warm bodies i think that was in the daytime it was in kind of a city desert scape i think i can't remember really well See, all I remember from Warm Bodies is, oh, you're trying to make necrophilia a thing now, so. <laughs> it, um, oh, yes. yeah, it it killed zombies quicker than Twilight killed vampires, that movie did. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't remember much of Warm Bodies, other than the fact that it was shot next to my building. That's why I watched it. So, um. Well, you just, like, <laughs> lean out and it's like, keep it down out there. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, I find it really funny. I mean, just a short sidetrack is that when they were filming Warm Bodies next to us thing, our building, like my work, my office building had a had a warning, had like a notice that was saying, oh, we are filming Warm Bodies over the next few days. And do not be surprised if you see uh, if you hear explosions of cows and sheep and all kinds of different things. I was like, excuse me. <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about Alice, because obviously here. She's no longer, in many ways, the amnesiac survivor. She's now essentially this desert warrior. She's got, like, the Kurokai knives, which was actually an idea of a fight trainer to use, and it grates that iconic image on the the, uh, poster where she's got, like, the two boomerang sort of shaped knives, which I think if you're going into zombie apocalypse, that's sort of, like, a very good tool of choice to have, Um, a big, sharp knife. Certainly isn't going to cause you too many issues, but I think... When we get into the fourth film, and we're obviously in the Alaskan wilderness, one of the great missed moments was the fact that we didn't get to see a zombie bear. And Anderson <laughs> was actually questioned about like whether he'd see a bear, and he was like, oh my god, if you told me like a few months before, we could totally have put a zombie bear in this. Uh, well, that's because this was done before Far Cry Five, and like, and like the the trailer of Days Gone came out, you know. Yeah. So no one was familiar with these really novel ideas of having a zombie bear. Before we start our obsession with including bears in everything, um, <laughs> I mean, I I would love to see a, a zombie bear. Like when we're in the airplane graveyard sequence, 
how cool would it have been to see like a zombie a zombie bear like come stumbling out of the trees? I mean, the scene just writes itself. Even just Alice runs away from Bear. Would have I been... see. I see this. You know, you're saying this, and I'm stumbling out, and then I see this like really comedic scene of like just her scrambling down, and then and then you see her like right joining right next to her is her finding Claire, who's also running like madly after her, and then it's just like this whole trail of people <laughs> running after each other. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying I, to. I'm not sure. I'm not sure my directing would be very, very fun. <laughs> it's okay. Bears can't run downhill, so. Same as dogs can't look up. Now, something that does become a little bit of a bugbear here is the fact that zombies now move from being the shambling hordes to the running hordes. They're more the frenzied zombie types because, you know, 28 days later made money and now all zombies have to be fast-paced. Um well- I think that I think that the the justification here is that um, is that you know we did have extinction where we had Isaacs testing out stuff on zombies and we saw how the T virus kind of morphed their capabilities a little bit and I feel like that's one of the reasons why the zombies are kind of adapting to the world around them because you know they're not just the dead that rose back up they're they're infected with this virus that's regenerating them. So they're able to kind of grow from the things that they are. They're not supposed to be smarter, but I would assume they could get faster. It can be a bit jarring. I mean, yes, they we they obviously do some interesting things, such as like when she's running from the rooftop of uh, of zombies and repels sort of off the roof. I thought that was a very cool sequence, and I love the fact that she's still very much in sort of survivor mode. So all her ammunition for the shotguns basically like coins. Yeah, that uh, was really. Cool. And with Afterlife, I mean, it was the prospect of shooting it in 3D, which was like a big appeal to Anson coming back to the franchise. And um, I feel that uh, in many ways it's it's uh, it pretty a little detrimental because this isn't the best 3D, it has to be said. So some of it is a little overplayed, um, to say the least. And certainly some of the special effects work, especially with like the 3D work and when you're looking at, like, the Miller, the Alice army, because we obviously mm-hmm. have the opening uh, attack on the Umbrella franchise where Alice and all her clones are basically turning up to slaughter all these uh, Umbrella sort of, uh, employees to take over this sort of facility and only for uh, Wesker to purge it, which is basically to nuke it. Afterlife served the purpose of him coming back to the franchise, but it also served the purpose of kind of bringing back characters and bringing back characters and introducing new characters that that worked you know that that was like from before it was from video games there was a a a little bit more of the injection of the video games inside where now not only does claire come back but we also get to see chris redfield come in and which i mean i don't know if this is like pre-prison break for wentworth miller or was this like a screen test for him because he was trapped <laughs> and um, they were like, oh, no, he was really doing he idea. was doing prison break yeah. at the time because it's two thousand five. Yeah, so. so, yeah, um, but you know, i i would have I would have liked to see a little bit more of Chris Redfield in the franchise. It's a, it's kind of sad that we never really got to see more of him. Um, it, but then, yeah. but then I mean, I guess it comes back to the fact that I think it's it's really strongly female in this sort of <laughs> the Resident Evil stuff. So, oh, definitely so, and uh, it's great the fact that when Chris. Chris Redfield's obviously uh, introduced him. The fact that he doesn't sort of take over, he is very much still 
Alice's sidekick. Um, he's just another trained professional. And I love the fact that these survivalists, survivors who've taken over this prison don't know if he was a convict or not, so they've kept him locked up in this cage in the basement. Uh, but it has to be said, though, that this film does some awful, awful teases, such as, like, where you've got this, like, old souped-up armoured vehicle, and we think, great, we're going to go cruising down the streets in this APC, and it's going to be really fantastic. And it's like, no, the engine's over there. So, uh, yeah, we ain't, we're going to tease using this vehicle, but we're not going to use it. Um, <laughs> we do get the big... We essentially get the Resident Evil version of Pyramid Head, which is like these big uh, yeah. giant zombies with huge axes, um, yeah. giving us a great sequence in the in the showers where it's like knocking out pipes and mm-hmm. some real. And then uh, we had like, and then we also had in the showers. We also had the burrowers, um, you know, and uh, we also now know that the zombies can swim. Yeah, I'm. Always, I'm never sure about like swimming zombies because i know they basically hang around on the bottom of the lakes because they sink but yeah so, like zombies underwater there's just a whole other creepy edge to that that just yeah. like freaks me out um and so I, anyway. yeah i you know i mean if, if sharks weren't enough like imagine this zombies can be in water that means that there can be zombie sharks how creepy is that <laughs> Well, watch zombie flesh eaters, and then you can. The opening is a zombie fighting the shark. Yeah, well, so here we get the also stupid scarab devices that basically only really serve to take take Claire's character and make it evil, just because there's no real rhyme or reason why we her character had to be evil at all. But that's the way that they've chosen to go. Um, I love the though when we're obviously looking at this film, and I think more so than the third film, that we've got the real sense of desolation and that the world has just basically been eradicated and it's down just like this last handful of survivors. Um, it's really sort of so, so just like with Alison, she's flying the plane and she's traveling from place to place trying to find her friends and uh, collecting sort of all these clues along the way. Um, I think it does a really nice job of sort of establishing this, the world it's in. Um, the survivors this time round are a little more cliche. Just got a lot of very sort of disposable sort of characters that a lot of them you kind of forget about. Um, yeah, I mean the only one I remembered through all of this, um, the only thing I remembered from Afterlife actually, other than the cloned Alice's and um, the final Wesker scene, was really Luther West <laughs> and. Um, Luther West is played by Boris Kodjo, and he kind of plays this, like, I guess he's kind of plays the, this, I don't know, model of sorts, I guess. We end up seeing, like, this thing where he's modeling a watch in, in, in a big billboard that he's, that the building is, you know, facing, <laughs> and, uh, and, but he proves to be, you know, he proves to be a valuable, um, person in the team, because he's, he has the skills, and he is, you know, Compared to the other people who are either chicken or selfish, they, they he he comes as kind of like this um, stronger male character that kind of keeps everyone together. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think the other downside to this is obviously we talked a bit about the zombie mutations. The zombie mutations in this film are just so stupid. It's the mandible mouths um, from Resident Evil Five, and it's not enough to bring back zombie dogs. We've now got to have them 
they basically open up their whole head so their head is now just this set of mandible jaws and the fact that Wesker um, is back and oh wait he's also got this weird mandible jaw because his plans are to consume Alice which is kind of creepy because you know, you know, see that that's where that's where afterlife kind of gets me a little in in certain parts. Is that you know it it really makes me wonder because you know in we didn't talk about it, but uh, in what was it the was it the third one? Yeah, the third one. We see that um, we see that Isaac's was able to transform himself with the T virus. And he's figured out how to bond that with him in his own extreme ways. Now we turn around and we have Wesker, who has also claimed that he has bonded with the T-virus. Well, see, now that's the problem. (laughs) Is that we've been talking throughout these four films about how Umbrella Corporation wants to be able to find that formula that has generated this successful Alice that they have right now. Yeah. This bonding that works. But if it works with Dr. Isaac and then it works with Wesker, where is the problem, right? Then you should be able to bond this with other people. You wouldn't have thought so. Um, but it is one of those sort of gray areas for some reason. And in, in this, like, so much of the pseudoscience is thrown around in, in throughout the series of films. And the role of the T virus changes from film to film. So it's never quite yeah. sure what it's supposed to actually do. Um, other than create zombies. Well, I mean, we do learn. We do learn. I think that at this point we can move on to the next film and uh, say bye-bye to our post-apocalyptic section and head back to the all-out war because here's where the story kind of uh, takes a turn. Retribution, Retribution takes, I think, what, a three-year break from the movie previous of it, previous to it? It took, it took a two, two, three years break, I think, um, before its launch. And in this time frame, Alice has changed yet again obviously um she's now in a different world in a certain way where um we you know it it really feels like alice has dealed these really bad cards because he always ends up being caught up and then dumped into these crappy situations where she always ends up in some form of umbrella corporation simulation act or something like that and uh it just gets worse and worse every time because I think, I don't know if the films are really trying to show off Alice more or show off how the extent of Umbrella Corporation and the tech that they've developed. But I think one of the things we need to remember is that um, between Afterlife, there was a few years in the story that had spanned. I think they were with like four or five years. And then between Afterlife to Retribution, there was also like another four years that had passed or something like that. Um, by the time we get the end by the by the time we hit the end of the franchise, 10 years was our span from when Alice had woken up in that bathroom in 2002 that we watched in Resident Evil till the end. Yeah, I mean, to its credit, I mean, Retribution has this wonderful opening because at the end of the previous film, um, Alice is on the deck of the of these container ships with her little allies and uh, yeah. we've got this sky full of, like, umbrella... Uh, Helicopters, to- yeah. choppers. The, these uh, choppers and you've got all these little soldiers and you think oh my god this is like so cool I want to see what happens yeah. next and Anson is <laughs> at least he delivers here because one of my issues with the final chapter is that we have at the end of Retribution we have this wonderful 
uh, seen with on top of the burnt out White House, you got again we've got uh, Alison Oller allies uh from this film including wesker who's apparently now a good guy and you've got the zombie hordes that come around you've got zombie dragons in the sky and you think oh this is gonna be an absolutely fantastic like complete battle movie and uh when we obviously start final chapter it's all happened it's all apparently happened off screen and it's just alice that's left we don't get to see anything with retribution he incorporates it into the opening sequence which is probably the most over the top opening sequence as a result of this yeah. everything is shot in slow is enough slow motion to put Zack Snyder to shame slow motion and reverse pretty much slow motion and reverse is how they did that scene and I you know I mean my love for the franchise has to be sparked from retribution though I love it so much and I think it had to do with the fact that Resident Evil, I don't know if it was 4, I think between 4, 5, and 6, that was when I started playing the games a little bit more. So I really got into it because this one, Retribution, was just, you know, you went through all these simulation areas, and you started seeing all these characters, and a lot of the characters were from the video games. So, you know, you had that whole crew that they met up with. There was Barry, there was Leon, there was Ada Wong. And then, obviously, you have all these, like, Jill Valentine comes back out. And she has that horrible scarab thing on her chest, too, <laughs> that's controlling her. And we're starting to see, you know, like, the Red Queen comes back into the equation now. And we're starting to see kind of, like, the story come into this full circle. Obviously, by the time we go to final chapter... Um, that's exactly where the full circle is because we head back to the hive. Yeah, uh, certainly with Retribution, this is this is probably one of the more interesting uh, entries in the series, and it really sort of ends it's the moniker of the all-out war era because this is basically what this film is. It's just one big long action sequence as Anson finds a way to essentially shoot all his zombie fantasies and include them in the same movie because after we have this opening sequence we're suddenly switched to Alice and she you knows she's living in Siberia she's got the husband she's got the deaf kid mm-hmm. and it's all like oh was it all a dream was this yeah. like is this Dallas where we just now woke up in the shower and it's like it never happened um but no zombies attack and we find out when it Alice is now in a simulation city that umbrella have built they built this facility where they this huge facility and they've built um the basically cities from around the world like uh russia and so moscow and uh, tokyo and they can run simulations with zombies to see how effective the t-virus actually is and alice is now in this um at the same time we obviously have this group of mercenaries that are coming to rescue her and this film, as we said about it, it's just from start to finish, it's just guns Action and violence, packed. and it's uh, it really. And... <laughs> you even throw in throw in some car car racing for good measure because you know he has you know shopping and death race under his belt now, and he's all <laughs> like, yeah, I can do all this now. It's all ready. I can have all these skills and I have all these resources and you know I got all these fools who buy the tickets no matter how how bad the ratings are. It's so like you're five okay, films I call, in. I call I call people who watch this fools, but I am one of the fools because I am there on opening weekend. Okay, so I think if you hate this franchise, you have me to blame as one of the people who keep generating cash in order for this to be greenlit. Oh, certainly. I mean, this film was made a budget of sixty-five million. 
box office it took home was 240.2 million uh this is why these things keep getting made this yeah, is see, this is the reason why i mean apparently when when I, I i started i think i was a little bit more into blogging at that time and what i've heard was that um the foreign markets especially asia really eats this stuff up they love it to death you know <laughs> so that's why you see these resident evils and these transformers um uh, that never die yeah, I mean, this this film, I mean, any zombie logic is thrown completely out the window in this film. As zombies can now drive cars and motorcycles. I mean, this is worse yeah, than Nightmare the Plaga, City. The, the Plaga is whatever, right? I forgot, I forgot the, the, the Moscow uh, death one. So the Plaga is <laughs> dead. Or, the Plaga is undead, I think. I don't remember. Oh, uh, it's, um, yeah. This film also uh, has the selling point in bringing back all your favorite characters from the previous films, regardless if they were killed off previously or not. Uh, yeah. through the wonderful loophole of clones. Unfortunately, this means that Colin Salmon returns because it wasn't enough to kill him off in the first one. He has to come back and torment us with his hideous act in this one as well. Uh, the plus side, obviously, is that Michelle Rodriguez is back and it's always fun to see her. And she also gets one of the best death scenes of the whole franchise. And uh, again, it's more swimming zombies and it's creepy as hell because they're like a swarm of piranha uh that they're showing oh us yeah yeah as we yeah. uh as we see the see them swimming up and it's it's creepy as all hell oh yeah i mean i think that retribution does that's such a great job and it totally changes the gear right i mean in you know think about the third and fourth as kind of like your midpoint where it's kind of transitioning from that survival into that action and they really you know have that action overpowering the survival horror aspect here it's just all out action the zombies you don't feel scared you have like one or two jump scares maybe there are some creepy things like you know swimming uh hordes of swimming zombies coming at you and uh i just think it's done so well i think i really love this film it was uh it was such a fun movie to watch it was like you know that blockbuster gold that you needed um mm. Just to, you know, enjoy and really be immersed in this world where Alice is, like, as kick-ass as she can be. She has, like, a fantastic, like, outfit. Because <laughs> she always has these, like, new sexy outfits that I find are so amazing. Like, I, I love, like, I really, really like. I think Alice is such a great character in so many ways. Like, it's, at this point, it's it's, you know, I mean, I feel that, you're watching this because Alice is such a great character and you really want to see the story of her because as we get into retribution in the final chapter, we're starting to really see all these pieces that have been dropped about the stories pull together. And in retribution, we get one of those scenes where we started in, I believe it was the second one where you have that Tokyo and you see that Japanese girl just standing there while it's raining and then, you know, it's yeah. it's you wonder if she was kind of like the start of this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, Alice is now changes out from desert gear to leather gear, so enjoy that. <laughs> um, and she also gets a new sidekick in the form of Ada Wong, who I know a lot of people criticizes her inclusion in this because they felt it was just an excuse for two hot girls to uh, be filmed fighting each other, which it has to be said, the actual action scenes in this film are shot so much better than the final chapter in the fact that 
nothing is like quick cuts it's actually gives us some pro lingering and then we can take it in there but Lee Bing Bing um plays Ada Wong and she's basically transferred from the video game her character looks and feels like a video game character which isn't a bad thing um because you know she's the hot Asian chick in the in the little red dress killing zombies and I think that is uh kind of what we wanted we wanted from the franchise all this time it would seem well, I would say I would say that it's a smart move in a sense because I mean the 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 last two films kind of broke away a little from the video games completely, and now we're kind of heading back into the direction where we're like, hey, wait, you know, this is still based on a video game, and we're still gonna have video game elements in this. Um, I just wonder if this was paired at the same time as like Resident Evil Six re- release because that was where I think like Ada and Leon and all that got got a whole bunch of like. Uh, a lot of like um like they were in the video game there uh but i don't know i don't know the time frames of those releases but yeah ada Wong um first appears in five uh yeah so so yeah she had uh, she had been established in the video game uh yeah. no she first was in four so yeah she's mm-hmm. certainly been established at this point in the video game world and i mean it's to anderson's credit the fact that he continues to work in these characters even if they're not going to have the Legion roles they have. I mean, the only real exception to this is the character Wesker. And I think mm-hmm. that's just because he's such an obvious bad guy. Um, mm-hmm. To constantly keep bringing him back kind of makes sense because he is always this threatening sort of personality, even though he suffers from the same sort of design flaws as Ada Wong and the fact that it's very clearly a video game character that they're trying to put into... Um, into a kind of realistic situation if you take out the fact that it's you know clones and zombies it's it's a very sort of semi-realistic world that it's put in well the characters like Wesker and Ada Wong are so exaggerated it's hard to uh to see them focusing in this world and I think to an extent Wesker gets a slightly light, lighter and um I don't know it's because we've seen him so much in these films that we sort of just buy the act at this point we don't even question it anymore but <laughs> Well, I mean, Wesker goes through two act, two different actors in his roles, I think, and it gives him a little bit of a difference, I guess. Um, I'm not a big fan of the Wesker villain. I think he's a little bit uh, over-exaggerated, but uh, then I feel like the games kind of give him this kind of, like, <laughs> cheesy villain role as it is, so... Yeah. I'd say that it, it, it kind of matches well with the games. But, you know, I think now that we're heading into this final section, um, one of those really great things I love uh, of Anderson that we haven't really talked about and we've really just full-on reviewed the sequence of the movies, his really cool, like, faraway shots. You, you get faraway shots and the over overhead shots. And, I mean, they're throughout most of the films that he uh, he films, they're there. And uh, it really adds this really nice Anderson touch to it. But in these two films, I mean, like um, the fifth one, a lot of it is you get a really nice scene of like where um, just just, you know, like whether it's the ship or whether it's in those uh, the cities that they're in and that sort of thing. It really works with that scenario. But I think uh, moving on to, say, the final chapter um, when they're in that, like, dilapidated building that they're defending. And you see, like, this wells of fire, like, gas pouring down and the fire going. It's just, like, fire waterfalls. And it is such a cool scene. Like, I know you're not a big fan of Final Chapter, and I understand it. Um, I'm not a crazy fan of it. 
but I think that to the film's justice, um, I don't know if we're going to spoilers or not, but I really like the way that they kind of wrap the whole thing up. Um, the main reason of rewatching this other than, you know, to film, to, to record this was really the fact that I wanted to see how the movies would blend together, um, how the story flowed. Because, you know, I want, I never watched this in like binge watch version. So it always felt like there was like this gap in your memory and it didn't really have to flow. It just kind of had to make sense. So now you really see this like flow in the story where like, as I was mentioning before, the final chapter brings uh, a full circle to the events. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting as well, obviously, when we get into final chapter, I mean, at this point, Alice is once again ditched the lever, she's kind of in the desert gear again, and I think it's very strongly due to the fact that Mad Max Fury Road came out and made serious money, so the studio's like, we've got to have our zombie Mad Max, and that's why we have Alice doing so much stuff uh, out in the desert again. I mean, this film, <sighs> yeah. It has has moments I enjoyed. The main bugbear is just in how they shoot the action. Because whenever someone enters into an action scene, it's just quick cut, quick cut, quick cut. And you think, is someone trying to break the record set by wrecking for a dream for the most cuts in a film? It's just dizzying and you never get to focus on anything that's happening. And everything is just so much of a blur that you never get a chance to take it in or process what you're seeing. And it's really frustrating as well because you can see that there's clear people who have fight choreography training and they never get to really make the most of it and we have these scenes such as where she's on top of these tanks that dr isaac's basically cruising through raccoon city in uh which are very familiar to dead reckoning from uh george romero's land of the dead the uh big super tank they had in that and here we have this have these uh these like super tanks that are churning through raccoon city and i i really love it because i love anything that's like sort of futuristic near future military hardware i think that's really cool to see and these tanks really kind of deliver and we have this what could have been a really great fight scene on top of the tank and it's just it's so downplayed because of how the film is is edited during these action scenes and it makes me wonder why they chose to go the way that they did for this because it makes no sense visually and certainly as someone trying to watch it it loses a lot of the momentum because you can't focus on what's going on um but i don't know i i don't i don't really i mean i'm sorry i i don't really like i don't think it bothered me that much i i still um i still enjoy the action scenes i thought they were cool enough for what they were maybe it's just at this point my <laughs> my expectations of these films are much lower than they were but i just really like seeing alice and i have this bias to what i'm seeing on screen i don't know but yeah, I, I get what you I, I get what you mean. I mean, thinking back, I, I do get what you mean by uh, by that. But it, you know, for an action film, it kind of is a cop out. <laughs> yeah, it's it it certainly is. I mean, it's it's frustrating as well because I mean, this is going to be the big sort of final sort of part of the puzzle. And again, much like we said with Retribution, Anton takes great delight in giving nods to pre the previous films in particular the fact we're back we have to go back to the hive so we once again meet the red queen and we get to see the laser corridor and we have all these little references to what we'd mm -hmm. seen in the first one which was a really nice touch um yeah. the problems occur in the fact that we are now reinventing the history of the t-virus in the opening credits um where dr isaac's partner who 
created the T-Virus to cure his daughter who was aging prematurely. Um, it, it's sort of like the main sort of focus. So we learn about who the Red Queen actually was. And um, yeah, the Red Queen is far too friendly considered how much of a creepy psychopath she was in the first film. Which I well, found, yeah. found kind of jarring. It's sort of like she suddenly gains like this element of humanity as uh, she well, supposedly realised what Umbrella are doing. Yeah, well, I see that's that's the thing is they they I think that like whether whether it makes sense or not, okay, like, let's push aside the making sense or not because we kind of have accepted a few at this point that there is a suspension of belief that you need to have in order to endure through Resident Evil movies as well as just a story that it takes. But the fact is that they do try to explain all these questions that you have, right? And I think that in that sense, I feel that Anderson, as the writer of the thing, he really has done a good job to try to answer these questions that you'll have that really make sense. Because he's that means that he's actually questioned himself, you know, like, well, why am I, well, what would people say that I'm reinventing what the T-virus and that situation that happened in the hive? 10 years ago and now well what why is the red queen helping alice in the way in the only way that she can yeah. and, and you know like i feel that sometimes that that's enough at least for me uh that it, it's enough because you know it kind of gives me that feeling that you know at least the director thought about it yeah um the writer thought about these little details that i've had and he felt that this was sufficient for, to complement the story that I was trying to tell. I just want to obviously mention about the Patient Zero sequence in Final Chapter, which sees a zombie outbreak um, happening on a ski lift, which I thought was really kind of cool. Um, mm. And the little backgrounds we got into Umbrella's big big sort of end game here, because yeah. they basically plan to eradicate all humanity on oh, Earth. Oh, yeah. So that they can rebuild it in their own image. Um, and, okay, so so let me just do a quick insert here because I was actually going to talk about this and I forgot to write it down, so I didn't think about it. And what happened is that during that whole speech, they talk about this. They talk about how they're trying to like save the resources and like save the resources and all the good stuff in Earth and pretty much kill off everyone that's you know <laughs> that's not worth it type of thing, right? So you think about this thing, and I was like, when they said that, I was like, sure doesn't feel that way. <laughs> because, you know, back a few movies ago, we've learned that because of this outbreak, the water in the on Earth has evaporated. <laughs> so pretty much you've lost all of these, um, these outbreaks and stuff. So final thoughts, I mean, obviously, it's been a journey, to say the least, from... From Survivor to post post apocalyptic and all that war, and along the way we've seen this character of Alice like finally regain her memories, and I felt that the ending of of final chapter I I don't know if it's it's not really the final chapter I mean even in terms of like the filmmaking because they're rebooting the franchise as we speak even at the end it's sort of like Anson sort of leaves it open so that he could do another one. Uh, if you want to, because obviously Alice is still dealing with the zombie threat at the end of the film. Overall, I mean, how did you find the journey itself? Um, from where we start, obviously, on the, the floor of the mansion through to Alice riding off into the sunset being chased by zombie dragons. I mean, how 
I think our experience of Resident, like my feelings towards Resident Evil franchise is kind of like Alice's journey through the movies. It was a bit of a bumpy ride. Uh, it had its good and bad moments, <laughs> some wins and a lot of losses. Uh, but through it all, I think, I think like there was a lot of really good stuff that happens. Um, there was a lot of really nice moments. Uh, you know, we, we saw some really fantastic takes from Anderson and how he directed the film and how he chose to have this new direction um, away from the video games and then still pulling in what he could from the video game to kind of stay true to the source material and yet still creating a really iconic female character. And I think all of those things are what makes Resident Evil franchise worth a watch. Yeah, they're not, you know, top tier movies, but, you know, if you if you can sit down and enjoy Fast and the Furious or Transformers, there's nothing that's going to stop you from enjoying Resident Evil franchise. I mean, I don't know. This is a problematic franchise for myself at, at best. Is I think now, looking back, I mean, there's certain films that I enjoy more than others, certainly. Um, and I think I'm finding it that it's all the odd franchise uh numbers that I, re- I tend to enjoy the most such as like so that'd be resident evil one three and five would be my particular yeah. favorite so when we look at two and two four and six there's problematic elements that stop me obviously getting into them um something we obviously didn't mention as well um continuing the family affair that these films really became because obviously uh anson being married to his leading lady um, their real life daughter actually took over the role of the Red Queen. So uh, when we see the Red Queen in Final Chapter, um, she's now being played by uh, Eva Anderson. So she plays the Red Queen. So let's. So as the tradition of movies and tea goes on, and we're about to wrap this thing up, um, what would you pair for a viewing of you know six movies? I don't know why you pair <laughs> something with six movies, but yeah, it's. <laughs> I think if you like if you survive the Resident Evil franchise, um, it's time you you essentially earned your big boy stripes and you can or your big girl stripes and you can move on to some proper zombie movies. And I would say look at Romero's zombie saga, um, in particular. And I'm going to do some editing here. In you want to watch it from night through to Land of the Dead and then stop watching them. You do not need to watch Diary and you don't need to watch uh, Survival because they're just awful and. Romero only made them because um, his fans wanted him to. And, you know, at this point, he was sort of like the grandfatherly figure in the horror community to us all. He was... Romero is just like this really... was a really lovable sort of guy. And he was always really good to the fans in conventions. And he never got really sort of tired, even though he made other films outside the zombie genre. He was always happy to talk about the zombie movies, answering questions he probably answered a hundred times. And... Yeah, I love the fact that even when he gets onto Land of the Dead, he'd grown this ponytail, and he was questioned by by some reporter, and he sort of he just basically responded by saying, "You know, it's my midlife crisis, so deal with it." (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, certainly, I think Anton. When we look at his his zombie saga, so it's Night of the Living Dead, then Dawn, and then Day, and then Land. It's this. Like Resident Evil, it has this story that it tells of this. In, in from Romero's perspective, it's more of a worldview that it shows how the world adapts uh, to the zombies rising and how zombie culture themselves, how the zombies now work into this new vision of society. And I think in that respect is what Anson does. I mean, Anson clearly is 
references so many aspects of Romero's work, especially in the first film. There's so many, like when we see the hordes, um, he very much treats them the same way that Romero shoots his zombie hordes. So while it seems a bit of an obvious answer, I would always say that like Romero's zombie saga um, is not only just like the greatest zombie movies ever, but it's the perfect accompaniment that if you've worked your way through Resident Evil and you want more zombies and you want a little more edge to them, then Romero is sort of like your graduation. This is like your beginner <laughs> pack for zombie movies. Um, and then Romero is sort of like your, your intermediate level. And then if you survive that, you can look at like the Fallucci gut muncher ones, which are just like trying to, but we're basically trying to top everything the, the Americans were doing. And it was just like really sort of out there and disgusting. So, yeah. And well, I guess, uh, which is, I guess it made sense that, uh, you know, from the array of zombie movies available right now, it was supposed that it was going to happen that you would choose Romero and I would choose a remake of Romero's movie, um, directed by Zack Snyder, um, Dawn of the Dead. It's as simple as that. I mean, you have a whole chunk of movies already recommended to go with this, so why not add on Dawn of the Dead remake? Dawn of the Dead's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I hate when people bag on Zack Snyder. I think Zack Snyder's a great director, and right, probably... He's kind of a... Yeah, he, he kind of has his wins and losses with me. I, I don't like a lot of his films, but mm. um, Dawn of the Dead was a really... like It was really nice. It was really great. Uh, it was... I've never seen the original, so I guess I have no comparison. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, in the Dawn of the Dead remake, it's penned by James Gunn of uh, Guns of the Galaxy fame, uh, directed, as we said already, by Zack Snyder. And, I mean, George Romero gave it his own stamp of, of uh, approval. He said he, he saw it and he felt that even though it features running zombies, they worked within the world that he was creating. And I think certainly how Snyder introduces his own zombie apocalypse uh, through that opening scene of like domestic bliss into absolute chaos and uh, news <laughs> footage. It's sort of like it's perfect world building and he never feels the need to sort of replicate any sort of moves that Romero did in his Dawn of the Dead and gives us something completely fresh and there's so many uh, fun ideas uh, in there and I, I think uh, Dawn of the Dead the remake it's is a, a remake that worked out, which is always nice to see, rather than a remake that just, like, destroys everything you loved about the original. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this brings us to the end of this trek through the Anderson zombie-verse. Um, Extensive trek. <laughs> yes. We've, uh, we've certainly seen some sights along the way, lost some friends, and probably lost some of our sanity along the way with some of the moves that Anderson chooses to make, and I think this these films i mean we see an anderson now becoming more part of the hollywood system and in many ways it's sort of establishing the anderson style so a lot of people are sort of dismissing him which is kind of unfair when we obviously looking at films he's making around this period such as like death race and alien versus predator but um where does our obviously our reevaluation of anderson's work take us next kim so the, the next one that we're heading into is AVP, Alien vs. Predator, in 2004. Um, obviously, you know, our previous track had uh, driven us all the way till 2016. Now we're heading backwards. We're going back in time to 2004, which is a film that came after, uh, I believe, it was Resident Evil. Yes. And, um, yeah, and uh, Alien vs. Predator morphs two franchises together 
Yeah. I don't know if you call Predator a franchise. Predator with, with when at this point Predator had two films, it also had books and comics. Alien had at this point I want to say it had four films. Um yeah. and new again numerous books, comics. There was a whole universe. I mean the Alien versus Predator world had existed in in the sort of comics and for years since it was teased at the end of uh, Predator 2 where you've got the alien head on the trophy wall that these two were going to meet and uh, after years in development hell Anson finally brings it to the screen but was it worth the wait? We'll certainly just find out on the next episode of Movies and Tea so we hope you can join us for that um, In the meantime sir, please like and follow us on iTunes or Stitcher or Podomatic um or wherever you happen to be listening to our podcast too. You can also listen to all our episodes uh, via our blog. Moviesandteapodcast.wordpress.com And on there you can not only find our complete episode archive, but you can also find uh, reviews and other articles uh, obviously relating to Paul W. Sanderson and his uh, filmography that we're uh, currently panning out. We're posting there in between these podcast episodes. But... uh, Thank you, as always, to my co-host, Kim. Yeah, thanks everyone who uh, made it to the end. You make it sound like this is like a chore for people to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> and, hey, uh, this episode is huge, okay? We covered so many movies. We lost our sanity. What, are, what do you expect from people? Okay. <laughs> um, but again, thank you everyone for listening, and... Uh, we look forward to you joining us for the next episode where we look at Alien vs. Predator. But until then, gas on! Attention all shoppers! Attention all shoppers!